If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Jeremiah chapter 31 this morning. Jeremiah chapter 31. We're going to take a slight break, uh, just a week-long break in the book of Nehemiah to explore uh, the really what we've done here today in a baptism ceremony, and that is uh, involving the covenant. I will explain to you what covenant theology covenant theology is. Now, um, there are uh, there is a lot of variety in the Christian church today. You can go down the street and find all sorts of different denominations, all sorts of different churches. Uh, and probably the biggest distinction that can be made in churches is between Catholic and Protestant. Uh, you know and understand uh, many of you what those differences are. Uh, but even in Protestant churches, you'll find a great uh, amount of variety. Uh, and there's a spectrum of belief, uh, a spectrum of things that separate us from uh, Episcopalians on one side all the way down to the Charismatics and the Pentecostals on uh, the other. Well, if, I mean, hopefully all of you have been paying attention this morning and you didn't just show up without knowing where you're going. But you came to a Presbyterian church this morning. Uh, you saw the, the sign as you drove up and some of you are members and so hopefully you, you know by now that we are a Presbyterian church. And uh, I just want to take the opportunity this morning to do a little bit of teaching and preaching on what it means for us uh, to be a Presbyterian church. The word Presbyterian, uh, it's an unfamiliar word to us, but all it really means is ruled by elders. Episcopalian means ruled by bishops. But we are a church that we believe that, that God has established elders in a church as the form of government. And so that's what it means uh, just very basically to mean Presbyterian. But we also hold to what's called Reformed theology and a, a particular subset of Reformed theology called Covenantal theology. And that's what I want to talk about today and show you uh, just from this one passage of Scripture what Covenant theology is. Last week, even if you weren't here, that's okay, I'll catch you up on everything that we've been talking about for really not just the last week, but the whole time we've been at church. But basically it's this, that all of the Bible is about Jesus Christ. We, f- we focused on that last week, but, but that was the whole point. The Bible is about Jesus. It's not about you. It's not about how you save yourself or what you can do to make God happy with you. It's about what Jesus Christ has come to do to save you. It's about Jesus. Now, so the Bible is about Jesus, but the framework, the structure of the Bible, it says essentially that, um, uh, or the structure of the Bible and the structure of the message is done in, or given to us in covenantal terms. And so we need to understand what it is, what a covenant is, uh, and how we fit into that. We need to understand a covenant in order to understand what the Bible is about or how Jesus fits into this story. Uh, in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34, it's, it's a partial revealing of, uh, of what the covenant is. And so we'll use this text uh, to introduce us to covenant theology. So let me read this for you. Uh, again, Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. Hear God's good and kind word to you this morning. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and will write it on their hearts. 
And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's ask for his help in understanding his word. Pray with me. Our Father, we thank you for giving us uh, this word, uh, this morning, your word that brings life uh, to to. Uh, dead people. Father, we pray that you would help us and revive us in our souls, that we might see the grace, uh, your grace and your mercy that is ours through Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that your gospel message would be proclaimed to our hearts, uh, that we would be encouraged this day, not because we are great, but because you are great for us. We pray all of these things in Christ's holy name and by the work of the Spirit. So I want to look at this passage in three ways. First of all, we're just going to ask the question, what is covenant theology? What is covenant theology? Uh, But what is a covenant, first of all? There are a lot of different ways to define the word covenant. And we still use this word in a variety of ways today. If you live in a neighborhood, you might have neighborhood covenants. Um, and, And we'll use the language of covenant, but rarely do we ever define what the word covenant means. There's... A very simple definition, it just means that a covenant is a relationship. Uh, in our children's catechism, which some of our children have learned, it's, uh, it's an agreement between um, one or, one or yeah, two or more people. Uh, that's the way that our children's catechism says it. It's an agreement between two or more people. One of the Dawson children used to say, it's a green man between two people. Okay, so a green man. But we can go a little bit deeper, and I want to give you the best, most concise, and pregnant uh, definition of covenant that I've ever heard. It's from a guy named O. Palmer Palmer Robertson, one of my professors. And it's simply this, six words, well, more than six, but just, just a few words. A bond in blood, sovereignly administered. So a bond in blood, sovereignly. It's six words, six words, okay. That's it. A bond in blood, sovereignly administered. I want to break down what that means very quickly. What is a bond? A bond. Well, it's it's about unity. It's about relational intimacy. A bond is when two things come together. Covenant is a bond between God and his people. So it's about intimacy. It's about chemistry. Uh, That's what chemistry is all about, bringing two things together and making a bond between them. But it doesn't stop there. It's a bond in blood, and that's where things get pretty serious, right? Because it's a relationship, but there's a requirement of blood that is involved with it. Um, The Old Testament language, and it's unfortunate because none of the, the translators translate it this way, but... Whenever a covenant is made in the Old Testament, they don't just say, hey, let's make a covenant. They say, let's cut a covenant. And in biblical terms, a covenant is a cutting ceremony where blood is spilt. And it's a symbolic bloodletting. So they will take animals. Uh, my favorite example of this is Genesis chapter 15, where God makes a covenant with Abraham, and then Abraham slaughters 
these big animals and takes their pieces and there's blood everywhere and it's this gory scene. And the whole point there is that in order for a covenant to be made, blood has to be spilt. And essentially, the symbolism is this. What you are saying by making this covenant in blood is to say that if I break the covenant, then let my blood be spilt. Let me die if I break the covenant. So it's a bond, a relationship in blood where the stakes are really high. Because if you break the covenant, then one of you has to die. And it's a matter of life or death. And then the third thing is, it is sovereignly administered. We don't use the word sovereign very often, but essentially it just means it's the king. The king is the one that administers the covenant. All through the Bible, uh, what you see are, is kings making covenants with, with his subjects. But you also see God, the great king, making covenants with his people. It's sovereignly administered because the king is the one with the power. You and I can't go to someone with power and say, hey, I've got a great deal for you. Let me do this thing for you because the one with power or money or, or any of those things is going to look at you and say, I don't, I don't need you. I already have the power. And so it has to be from the top down, sovereignly administered. The powerful one is the one that makes the terms of the relationship of the covenant. It would often work like this. An invading army with a king would come in and take over a nation or a people group. And he would kill almost all of the warriors, and he would have control, and then he would say, I'm going to do you a favor. I'm going to re- let the rest of you live, but here are the things that you have to do. And he would list those things out. You have to pay a tribute. You have to pay taxes. You have to give me all of your best stuff, and for that, I will let you live. That's the way that most of the human covenants went in the ancient times. And it was the sovereign making a covenant with those that were less powerful. He was doing them a favor. So that's what we see in biblical covenants. It is a bond, a relationship, in blood, a matter of life or death, sovereignly administered. God, the great king, makes a covenant with us. We don't have the right to do it, but he does it for us. So what about the text of Jeremiah here? Very quickly, I want you to see, first of all, that there, it is full of this talk of a relationship. Look at what he says in verse 32, kind of toward the middle. He says, I brought them by the hand to, I, I took them by the hand, so there's a bond. I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was a husband to them. You have the language of marriage involved here, the language of God wedding himself to a people. He makes the bond through a marriage. And he says, Israelite, the Israelites, the Jewish people of the Old Testament, they're like my wife. I have wedded myself to them. So there you see the first part of that. Um, And and it's described in in other relational terms. He says, um, I will make uh, with the house of Israel, this is verse 33, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God. And they shall be my people. It's possessive pronouns, right? I will belong to them and they will belong to me. God makes a bond in his covenant. He makes a people for himself. And he uses the picture of a a wedding, of a marriage in that bond. But we also see that it's sovereignly administered. That God is the one that does it. 
If you read through this, you see that God says over and over, I made, I made, I did it, I did it. And then he says, it switches. Then he says, I will, I will, I will. God administers the covenant to his people. He sets all of the stipulations. He's the one that does it. So we've seen a bond and we've seen that it sovereignly administers. But where is the blood? If you read through these verses, you'll, you'll say, well, wait, there's no blood involved here. Where is the blood? This is a new covenant. It's different than the old covenant. We're waiting for the blood of the new covenant. Where is the blood? I'm going to hold off on showing you where the blood is for just a minute. There are some implications very quickly I want to go over. Um, we're talking about the difference between an old covenant and a new covenant that God has promised here in Jeremiah chapter 31 to do something new like he's never done before. He says, the old covenant that I made when I brought the people out of Egypt with Moses, when I, when I brought them through the Red Sea and I did all of those things and, and gave them the law and all that, he says, that covenant was not the final covenant. I have to do something better for them. Why? Because they did not keep that covenant. I've got to make a better covenant with them. And God is promising in the new covenant to operate in a different way than he operated in the old covenant. And I want you to see this. At no point here does it say that God's people go to God and say, God, we want you to operate in this way. And as a matter of fact, God does not have to operate with us in any way because we're sinners. All we deserve is the wrath of God. But here we see that God says, I'm going to give you something that you do not deserve. I'm going to make a covenant with my people, not based on what you deserve, but because of my goodness. And so all through the idea of covenant, we see that God is a gracious God. And it's an understanding of how it is that we get to get to God. We live in a hyper-spiritual age. As a matter of fact, we've always lived in a hyper-spiritual age where people have been asking the question, how can I get to God? And the one thing the covenant says is that you cannot get to God. You cannot by your effort, by your hard work, you cannot do enough to make God happy or pleased with you. But that does not mean that there's no hope. Because the scriptures tell us that God comes to us and makes a relationship with us in his covenant. So how are you trying to get to God? What are you resting on this morning to make you right with God? All of us thinks there's something that God looks at and says, well, that makes you pretty special. I wear bow ties. I'm pretty special with God, right? God likes me because I wear... No, obviously, that's silly. But, but what is it? Do you think you're, because you're successful that God loves you? Do you think because you're funny God loves you? Do you think because you're really good looking God loves you? Right? There's nothing in this world that you can do to make God love you. But, but God has given his covenant so that we know that we can be in a relationship with Okay, so there is the idea of a biblical covenant. But I want to look at this covenant and look at the stipulations or the requirements of the new covenant. So what are the requirements, secondly, of the new covenant? I want you to see something very important here. Covenants, covenant theology, it's ultimately about history. And if you don't like history, then Christianity is not the religion for you. Because it is, at its very root, a historical religion. Covenant theology says that God works in history with a specific people 
to do specific things. And, and the history of the covenants is God's history of redemption and his saving of people for himself. And we see that uh, very early on here. He says um, that he brought the people out of Egypt. He's recounting the history for God's people. He says, I bring them out of Egypt. I did all of these things, and yet they broke the covenant. So covenant theology is at its very nature. It is uh, historical. Um, and that's important for us because we oftentimes con- conceptualize or think of religion as something that we do um, uh, or something that, that we can participate in through meditation or through spiritual acts or some of those sorts of things. Um, but it's not. And what God teaches us here is that he a- a- operates in history. He works in history. And Christianity is not about us trying to meditate to get to God or to reach a spe- special spiritual plane or anything like that. But Christianity is about reflecting upon what God has done in history. And so uh, we see that this covenant and the new covenant is historical. Uh, Secondly, what we see in this is that it highlights the difference between the old and the new covenant. The old covenant in the Old Testament era, um, beginning with with Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, but all the way up through the time of Jesus that God promised to work in a certain way. But he's promising here in the new covenant to work in a slightly different way. We see the internal nature of the new covenant. What does he say about the law? He says, uh, but in this covenant, verse 33, I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them. The reason why he says I'm going to put it within them is because before it was external to them. The law was written on stone tablets. It was kept in the temple. And what God is saying is no longer is it going to be an external religion where you have to go somewhere to do something to make to appease God. And there's a shift from enmity with God. You see all of the sacrifices of the Old Testament and all of the things that they did, they did it so that they would appease God and keep God from being angry with them. But but here in the New Covenant, there's a shift. He says... I'm going to write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. He says there's intimacy here. There's intimacy. He says no longer are you going to have to teach someone about the Lord because they're going to know. Now, Old Testament, was, uh, was the, the focus was on teaching about God And the New Testament, one of the great transitions to the New Testament is it's not about teaching about God, but knowing God. And this is the old biblical sense of the word know, to know, to know intimately, to know deep down to the very depths of who that person is. And God says, I'm going to know my people. And it's not just going to stop at me knowing them, but they are going to know me. They're going to get down into the depths of who I am. And they are going to be satisfied with me. Their their relationship with me is going to be fulfilling. And then we see here also that God does all the work. I will make a new covenant. I will do this. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. I will, I will, I will. God says, I will forgive their sins. I will do these things. God is teaching that he does all of the work in this. God is going to work in the new covenant to ensure that this covenant will not fail. 
And one of the amazing things about the new covenant here is that he is, again, he's talking in space and time, in history, to a people. And this is a people who had rejected God at every turn. They were married to God, and yet we're told over and over in the scriptures that they whored after other gods. They prostituted themselves to other lovers. And God says, I'm not going after a people that's lovely or lovable. I'm not going after a people that deserves my love. I'm going after a people that do not deserve my love. God binds himself to an unlovable and an unloving people. This is what I love about covenant theology. Because it it accurately tells me who I am. It says I'm not great. It says I'm not lovable in and of myself. It says that I can't do anything to get God's attention. But he loves me still. Covenant theology says that God has pursued me. That he has come after me when I was running in the opposite direction from him. It's a beautiful picture of what God does for us. Here in covenant theology. So finally, why does covenant theology matter? Um, I have a great story about Disney World, going to Disney World and getting on the uh, mission space. Okay, mission space, it's a terrifying, okay, there's two parts in the mission space. One part is the green part, one part is the orange part, okay? Um, never, ever, ever get on the orange side. Don't do it. Stick with the green. You are not strong enough to handle the orange side. I made that mistake. I went uh, to the orange side. You only have two options. You have um, you have roses or you have death. That's pretty much it. Okay. So mission space. Keep that in mind. You have the green side and the orange side. Well, Amy and I were there a couple of years ago, and we just said, you know, we were feeling very confident about our ability to ride rides. We went on the orange side. Even though everything, they had big flashing signs that said, you will die if you go on this ride, on this side. We disregarded them, but we got on it. And essentially what Mission Space is, it's, it's a big centrifuge. And they get you in there, and it's to simulate going into space. And this is what they do with astronauts. They put you in this thing, and they spin you around really fast till you want to throw up. Well, that's what Mission Space ultimately is. Well, Amy and I get in there, they lock you in. And then everything goes dark around you, and then the ride kind of goes up like this, and there's a screen in front of you, and they, you know, they've been warning you this whole time, like this could be the end for you, and you're terrified. And then at the very end, right before the ride takes off, they say, Don't close your eyes, keep your head still, and if you feel sick, look at a point on the horizon. Keep your eyes fixed on that point. Um Amy has a funny part where she closed her eyes and she can tell you that part. But we live to tell the tale because we got out of there alive. But this world is constantly turning. It's, it's slinging us all around. You know, we, we like to imagine that we have control, but on a day-to-day basis, we have none. We are simply tossed to and fro. Well, what's the thing... That keeps you from losing your lunch, spiritually thinking, uh, spiritually speaking. I mean, wh- what's the thing that keeps you centered? Well, here's what it is. You need a fixed point on the horizon for you to look at it. This is what God's covenant with his people is. It's the point for you to look at and say, 
I know with absolute certainty God is true to his promises. What has he promised? He has promised to be my God. And he has promised that I will be his regardless of all of the things that are happening around me. Here's my fixed point. Don't keep or don't move your eyes from your fixed point. God's promises to you are true. Secondly, we see assurance of salvation. Um, The covenant of God's grace is not based on your work or what you do, but it's based upon the finished work of Christ for you. Salvation based on your works, it offers you no hope because maybe this morning you're feeling pretty good, but about 30 minutes from now you might be feeling really terrible and you might decide to reject God. But your salvation, if it's based on your feelings or what you do, it's no hope. But salvation based on the work of God and on his promises, it does at least two things. It gives you confidence in the work of God. And then also it gives you peace. It gives you confidence because it says this in Romans 8. uh, Paul finishes this great section where he says, If God is for us, then who can be against us? Who can be against us? If God is for us, there's not a thing in the world that can stand in our way because God is for us. Gives us confidence. Secondly, it gives us peace. Look, if God is for you, if if God is your God, then why are you working so hard to make everyone else in the world happy? Why are you trying to prove to everyone that you're okay? Well, here's the secret. You're not, and everybody knows it, so stop trying to be, okay? And it's okay to not be okay. Because God is still for you. You can rest. It gives you peace. You don't have to be the first one in line at the Walmart. You you can wait and let other people go in front of you. Right? That's hard, but you can. You can have peace whenever other people attack your character because God is for you. Uh, the Rolling Stones uh, have this wonderful song called Give Me Shelter. It's one of my favorite Rolling Stones songs. Um, one of their most popular ones. And, and it's a haunting song, and it's just repeated. It's the same words repeated over and over. And, of course, they wrote it in the midst of a culture of... of Children who were going to war and all these things and and the lack of peace. And what Mick Jagger and the Rolling Stones are saying is, give me shelter, I need peace. And they tap into something there because we need to be covered. We understand this. And you say, I I feel pretty comfortable, I'm okay. Well, then why do you have life insurance and health insurance and car insurance and home insurance and and then backup homeowners insurance and and then backup medical insurance and and all of these things. You see, you give an inordinate amount of insurance, some of it because you're required to, but some of it because you know you need to be covered. Next week when the Super Bowl comes on, insurance companies will be trying to convince you with loads of money and advertising space that you need to be covered by their insurance. They have companies called Shelter Insurance because they want to be your shelter and they tap into that need that we have that we understand it. We need to be covered because the truth is we're exposed. Well, the covenant, God's covenant with his people is better than insurance. 
It's not an insurance policy in case of disaster. As a matter of fact, what we do with insurance is we pay a little bit up front so that we won't have to pay so much in the end. But with the covenant, God pays it all. And that's where the blood comes in here. Because here it says at the very end in verse 34, For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. And what, what over and over in the Bible what we're told is that God doesn't just forgive sin, but there always is a payment for sin. In order for there to be forgiveness, there has to be a payment. And what God does in the new covenant is that he pays the price for us through the blood of his beloved son, Jesus Christ. God makes a covenant with his people at the cost of the blood of his son. He makes the payment. God makes the payment that you couldn't make so that you would be covered by the disaster that you couldn't take. It rhymes. And I did that intentionally so that you would remember it and hopefully repeat it for the rest of your life. God makes the payment you couldn't take so that you would be covered by the disaster that you couldn't take. What's the disaster? The disaster is God's wrath for sin. God says, I know you cannot take it. So what do you need? You need a covenant. How do you get into the covenant? That's the last question. Are you covered by the covenant? The only way is to receive the promises of God through faith in Jesus Christ. You must be covered by the blood of Christ. So are you covered? Uh, Baptism is a sign and the seal of the thing that is promised. It points you to your need, but baptism isn't the thing that you need to be saved. Christ is the thing that you need. Baptism points to it, but it isn't the thing that you need. It's like this in college. Before, long before I met Amy, I was immature and stupid. Um, some of you are going, but you're still pretty not smart. So um, that might be true. <laughs> this was still long before I met Amy. Uh, I let my medical insurance run out. Because I was young and healthy. And I was like, I don't need to pay that like $42 a month. <laughs> it was cheap back then. $42 a month and I just let it run out. And then I got sick. And I went to the doctor, and they said, how are you going to pay for this? Well, I pulled out my insurance card, and I said, here you go. Mr. Dotson, your insurance, you're not covered. Well, but I have the card. But, well, they said, well, call your insurance company. So I called the insurance company. They said, Mr. Dotson, you haven't paid. I was trying to get you know, coverage by just a piece of paper. That's what... That's all baptism is. If you're resting in baptism, if you're resting in the Lord's Supper, if you're resting in um, any of your works, anything that you think I give to God that makes me appropriate or special to him, if you're resting in those things, it's like me trying to get medical coverage without, with just that little card. It didn't mean anything. The thing that really matters is faith in Jesus Christ. Are you covered by the blood of Christ? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us uh, this message today. We thank you for your covenant, uh, for your covenant love and faithfulness that never fails your people. We thank you that you love us uh, because we are not lovable. We thank you that you care for us and you are our God through faith in Jesus. I pray that all of us here would be found in him. We pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.